Steve, I'm going to test your knowledge about your home state of Nebraska. Really? All right. Here's the first question. What is the hourly wage required to afford a modest two-bedroom rental home in Nebraska? $16.08 an hour. <laughs> That's amazing that you knew that like right off the top of your head. Uh, okay, so here's another one for you. What about the number of hours a week a minimum wage worker needs to put in to afford that same apartment? That's easy. 71 hours, and Nebraska is 37th of 51 for housing affordability. Wow. Uh, you really know your state. I do, but I also have a confession to make. I know all these stats because I was just reading the 2019 edition of the Out of Reach Report that the National Low-Income Housing Coalition puts together each year. Okay, so what you're saying is you cheated. No, I just did my research for our show today. And by the way, I'm surprised you didn't ask me what things were like back in 1989. Hello and welcome to the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Corey Aber. And I'm Steve Guggenmoss. Today we're going to discuss some of the key findings of the National Low-Income Housing Coalition's out-of-reach report, not just in 2019, but also over its 30-year history dating back to 1989, and how affordable housing markets have changed over time. We're fortunate to have Andrew Arend, the Vice President of Research from the National Low-Income Housing Coalition who is the lead author of the Out of Reach Report. Andrew, thanks for joining us again. Oh, thanks for inviting me back. So 30 years of the Out of Reach Report. Before we get into the findings of the 2019 edition, let's look back at the motivation for the report and what it covers. Yeah. So uh, like you were saying, we published this first report, or the first time we published Out of Reach was in 1989. And the subtitle of that report that year was Why Everyday People Can't Afford Affordable Housing. And the point that that the report makes is that for many low-wage workers, rental housing is just too expensive for them. Like this just does not impact the lowest income renters um, or elderly or people with disabilities, which of course, you know, affordable housing is a significant a challenge for them, but it also impacts many other workers as well. And so um, what we do is we estimate the hourly wage that a full-time worker who's working 40 hours a week for all 52 weeks of the year, no time off, how much they have to earn in order to afford a modest one-bedroom or two-bedroom apartment in their area. And then we compare that housing wage, we call that the housing wage, we compare that to the wages that various occupations pay. I think that's fantastic because I, I think that Corey and I and many in the industry talk about affordability all the time with a lot of different complex measures. And it's nice really just to bring it back to the individual that's you know, and how it affects them. Right. And it's easy also for people to understand a wage. I mean, sometimes, you know, we talk about, you know, a shortage of 7 million rental homes for extremely low income renters, or we talk about, you know, nearly three quarters of extremely low income renters pay more than half of their income on rent. And sometimes, you know, those are important numbers and they really highlight the problem. But when you say, you know, a full-time worker has to earn $22.96 an hour to afford just a modest two-bedroom apartment, like everybody understands the concept of a wage and how much, you know, they know how much they make, and then they can compare that to, you know, $22.96. You know, one, one of the points that I think we hear a lot about also is, 
um, and, and we brought it up in the intro, right, what it takes for a minimum wage worker uh, to afford housing. Uh, but what you're saying is it certainly it's a challenge for minimum wage workers, but not only minimum wage workers. Right, exactly. So so some of the findings that we have in this year's report uh, are, you know, the national, on average, the national housing wage for a two-bedroom apartment is $22.96. The average housing wage for a one-bedroom apartment is $18.96. And so clearly that's much higher than the federal minimum wage of $7.25. And if you look at states or localities that have even higher minimum wages, they still don't reach the level of the housing wage in those areas. And, you know, one of the things you mentioned in the intro was about the number of hours that a minimum wage worker has to work. You know, nationally, a minimum wage worker has to work 103 hours a week to afford just a modest one-bedroom apartment. Uh, And one of the things you'll read a lot, uh, or one of the findings in the report that gets mentioned a lot, is the fact that a full-time minimum wage worker could afford a modest one-bedroom apartment at the fair market rent in only 28 counties in the U.S. And the U.S. has more than 3,000 counties. So so in 99% of counties, a minimum wage worker can't afford a, a one-bedroom apartment. And that's important because there's this myth about you know the minimum wage worker being a a teenager who works part-time, right? But, you know, the reality is slightly more than half of minimum wage workers are at least 25 years old. Uh, So they're working adults. And about 43% of minimum wage workers are working full-time. So, you know, we have a lot of full-time workers, minimum wage. And to get to your point about about it's not just a minimum wage problem – Uh, You know, housing affordability is a problem for millions of workers in occupations that pay more than just the minimum wage. And so one of the things we mentioned in our report is that uh, seven of the 10 occupations that are expected to grow the most over the next decade pay a median wage that doesn't allow a full-time worker to afford a one-bedroom apartment. And so these are occupations like home health care aid, personal care aid, uh, food service, um, and medical assistance that, you know, th- they're fast-growing occupations, but but they don't pay enough for one-bedroom apartment. So just one point back on the, the minimum wage, and you said 100 hours a week? Sort of 103 hours a week on average. So uh, just doing the calculation in my head, that's essentially someone has to work two and a half jobs. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, that is really astounding. That is. The, and what was it last year, do you remember, the, the change from last year? Uh, it was similar. I think last year it was either 99 or 100 hours a week. Yeah, the 103 hours is just remarkable. Uh, and over time, what kind of trends have you seen in that? So we've seen affordability get worse. You know, in, in the past 30 years, we've seen a number of changes that have not been for the good. You know, so for example, uh, in the first report, we make a reference to um, about one in three eligible households received housing assistance. Today, we know that it's only one in four households that receive housing assistance if they're eligible. So that has gotten worse. You know, the um, the private market since 1990 has lost about 4 million low-cost rental homes. You know, it, it, it lost some of those homes during the 1990s, but quite a bit of that loss has been just in the past five or six years. Uh, and we've seen since the recession, we've seen, you know, the affordability uh, problem for rental housing 
go up the income ladder. So it's it's affecting more renters today, um, and that has increased significantly over the last over the last ten years. And, and when you see that that uh, trend, you know, the the challenge going up the income ladder, what's the impact of that uh, sort of on the community more broadly or on the local economy? Yeah. So I mean, we know a lot of. Um, things about the importance of stable housing and, and affordable housing. And so we, you know, and and we know, for example, that children do better in school when they're stably housed and their parents aren't spending too much of their income on housing. We know that young children show greater cognitive development when their parents are living in affordable homes. And we think it's because their parents then have more resources uh, to spend on enrichment activities for their children. Um, you know, we know that, uh, you know, individuals who are living in stable are living in a stable housing situation. It's beneficial to them economically uh, for a number of reasons. One is, you know, many low income renters are in precarious jobs. And so it is hard to maintain a job if you're not in stable housing and you have to constantly be moving around. We know that, you know, they if they're living in affordable housing, they spend more on food, more on medical care. And then we also know, you know, they have more resources spent on other necessities as well, which is good for the community and good for the local economy. So there's a there's both individual benefits as well as community benefits when when people are living in housing they can afford. And you mentioned too um, certain segments of of the job market or of the economies of food service, health uh, health aids, et cetera. Uh, and these sound like fundamental aspects of any local economy uh, you know, for those people to be able to live in their own in the community that they work in. Exactly. I mean, you know, all communities rely uh, to some extent on on low wage workers, uh, and you know they need somewhere to live uh, without traveling a very long distance to get there. And you know that. One of the uh, things we don't really mention in the report, but, you know, it's if you think of areas that would rely on tourism, for example, so like the Orlando region and some other um, regions that, that rely on tourism, you know, a lot of those jobs are low paying jobs. And, you know, there's a desperate need for rental housing, affordable rental housing that those low wage workers could afford to live in. And you mentioned Orlando. Are, are there other areas that you would highlight in um, and, and the different kinds of jobs, obviously, um, that are of note in this report? Yeah, I think, um, you know, one of the things that, that we that the report includes, of course, we have national averages, but obviously the housing wage varies, of course, across the country. And we provide the housing wage for every county. So so we have it for every county. We also um, include an average housing wage for every state. And it varies quite a bit. And so, you know, for example, in California, on average, the two-bedroom housing wage is nearly $35 an hour. But within California, it's even higher. So in the San Francisco region, it's $61 an hour, which is by far the highest in the country. Um, but then when you look at a place like, say, West Virginia, where the average two-bedroom housing wage is less than $15, it's $14.27. In Arkansas, it's $14.26. They seem a lot more affordable. Obviously, you have this huge gap between how much it 
how much housing wages in California versus how much it is in Arkansas. But at the same time, wages are very different and incomes are very different between these two places. So in both places, workers in low-wage occupations struggle to find affordable housing because wages in general are much lower. You do see, though, that there's a lot more occupations in, in California that the median wage struggles to or the median wage doesn't rise to the housing wage. Um, in fact, uh, in California, the median wage of all workers, so renters, homeowners, every occupation, the median wage, hourly wage, is lower than the one-bedroom housing wage. And so that's, I mean, that's, um, there's just a, a, I don't even know what word to use. I mean, it's, it's an extraordinary problem, I think. And I think something that certainly, I mean, this is the reason that this report and other things related to affordability get so much attention right now is it's, it's everywhere and it's really acute in some places. Right. You know, when you look at the map that, that you will have on your, on your website that, that lays this out from, you know, most, uh, most expensive, least expensive or, or uh, highest housing wage, lowest housing wage, uh, I mean, one, one could think like, well, why not just move from California, where it's so expensive, to uh, to West Virginia or or to you know Indiana or Nebraska? Uh, Steve, maybe you could have a large population inflow to your state. That would be nice. Uh, <laughs> but so I, mean, I think you're saying there's a little bit more to that, more to it than just that. Um, you know, on the on the wage side, but I also wonder uh, to what extent quality of housing uh, makes a difference. So. Right, states that have you know, maybe more newer housing, uh, more economic vitality might have uh, higher quality newer housing versus some of the others. Uh, do you see that uh, playing out in your analysis? So we don't really, you know, look at uh, housing quali uh, quality specifically in out of reach, but that is definitely an issue that we're we're well aware of and concerned of, and particularly in weaker markets. And so, you know. In housing markets where the housing is less expensive or in weaker markets, you know, you would look at it and think, oh, housing costs are lower. Um, and if you think of older industrial cities, so like St. Louis, uh, Detroit, you know, there's likely an oversupply of housing. But the problem there is what the lowest wage worker or the lowest income families can afford to pay in rent does not provide enough revenue to a landlord to necessarily maintain the housing, right? And so even though there may be an abundant supply, what some renters can afford to pay in rent, the landlord's not going to maintain the housing at that affordable price. And so the housing is either very poor quality or, you know, you have a situation where housing could, you know, the, the housing could be abandoned. At the same time, you still have renters who desperately need that housing and the quality of that housing is a big, is a big concern. It's really very different issues. And, and like you say, if, uh, if it's causing housing stock to go out of the market instead of serve the people that it needs, then that's um, certainly not a housing market that's working well. Exactly. I, I mean, and, and um, you make the point or we make the point that uh, for for, you know, at certain income levels, the market just does not does not work for them because of that because of what they can afford to pay. It doesn't it doesn't incentivize landlords to maintain their 
their properties. And that is a problem in weak markets and in strong markets and even, you know, middle of the road markets. I mean, that is a, a significant problem. You know, one of the other things that, that strikes me, particularly at this time of, of year, uh, the time of year when you start to see more more hurricanes, more natural disasters, is what that does to the housing supply. Um, certainly, if we're we're in areas where we're already supply constrained, especially on the highly affordable end, and what what do you see there? Yeah, so actually, that's a that's a really good point. Um, you know, we've been we've been thinking a lot and working a lot around disasters and housing recovery, and you know, in the past, just to sort of highlight the the. Um, the growing size, I guess you could say, of this issue is that, you know, just in the past three years, you know, we've in the United States have experienced nine disasters that have caused damage of more than 10 billion, yeah, more than $10 billion. You know, so we had the wildfires in Colorado, flooding in Louisiana, flooding in other areas of the country. And then, of course, we had the hurricanes, Harvey, Irma, Maria, Florence, and Michael, um, that have caused significant damage. And and, you know, that will probably the size and the frequency of these types of events will likely increase. You know, and when you think about rental housing, particularly the lower cost, the low cost, more affordable rental housing, you know, it's often more affordable because it's in less desirable locations and in higher risk areas to flooding. Um, you know, it's often older housing that has that is that is affordable in the private market. So it's older, it's often of lower quality to begin with, and it often isn't meeting you know the new development standards that they now have in some disaster-prone areas, and so it's much more at risk. And then at the same time, when low-cost rental housing is substantially damaged, you know, it's really difficult for owners to repair or rebuild that housing and keep the rents low. Like it usually results in higher rents because they, they have to find some way to pay for their repairs and the redevelopment or redevelopment of that of that housing. And so, um, you know, so, so in New Jersey, for example, after Sandy, this is something that, that we're talking to people about because we're writing a report on it. Um, you know, small landlords of either single family homes or small apartment buildings of say maybe two to four or five units, you know, struggling to figure out how they could repair their their property with the resources they had. And, and in some cases, you know, they couldn't. And so the properties wound up being sold in investors who would reinvest in that property, but they're not reinvesting in that property to, to continue to charge low rents. Um, so it becomes much more valuable properties and higher. Right. The, the, the economics don't make sense um, unless they charge charge higher rents. And so we view, you know, that's a that's definitely, I think, a threat to the affordable rental stock in some areas. And then there's other threats as well, like needing to preserve the stock that exists, even in non-disaster prone areas. You know, we need to find ways or ensure that we have mechanisms in place to try to ensure that the affordable rental housing, both subsidized and private market that does exist, continues to to exist. So the preservation of that housing anywhere is is important too, because that's another threat. And and just going back to to New Jersey or, or other states uh, and localities affected. Um, so am I right in sort of understanding that maybe it, it's a little bit easier to rebuild larger properties, uh, tax credit properties, for example, or maybe. Right, so I recall after um, after Hurricane after Hurricane Katrina, right, we had the go zones and uh, around the Gulf that sort of a 
drove a lot of uh, tax credit equity investment into the markets. Do you see more success on the larger properties being rebuilt and and revitalized? Yeah, that's a that's an interesting point. No, um, I don't know about more success or less success, but you know we do know like. For example, in, in New Jersey, something similar occurred in terms of recovery, which is they um, had recovery funds that they put into a funding program for multifamily housing that was then combined with tax credits uh, to redevelop or or build new affordable rental housings that, you know, because it's tied with the tax credit, you know, they're larger developments, oftentimes larger developers. And that's very important uh, to get that affordable housing supply you know, online and, and yeah, online. Um, but there's this other piece to it though, uh, regarding small landlords that, you know, we have a lot of rental housing that is more affordable in small properties. And the question is how well can those landlords recover? Cause they can't really make use of the tax credit program because there's just not, they don't have enough units to make that feasible. Um, so we need to find ways to try to encourage that as well. I mean, they're both, I think, equally, they're both important. Um, yeah, and and so that's what we're finding. That's what we're thinking, you know, we, the, the, the report we're working on suggests that, you know, the um, using the tax credit program along with recovery funds is, very, is, is important, but there's also another segment that we have to be thinking about. Right. And I think those, those, uh, housing units with a smaller number, housing households or housing units that have a lower number of units in them, right? Like you say, a single family that has two or four units in it or a small multifamily. It's a really major part of the of the housing market overall, but um, but often doesn't get the attention. And, and that becomes an especially big problem as, uh, as there's uh, a need to serve those markets. I thought another interesting piece that you had in the report was about the the percentiles of hourly wage, and how that um, turns into uh, you know getting getting a feel not just for you know one point uh, but across the distribution and seeing how difficult it is. It looks like you know in general, if you're below the 50th percentile in hourly wage, you cannot afford a one bedroom or a two bedroom, and uh, and then I think that you looked at it by um, uh, race and ethnicity as well a little bit. We did exactly, and I mean that's a really good point. I mean the the um, the reason why we do that is precisely to show what you just pointed out, which is even um, you know nationally that even uh, a worker who's at the fortieth percentile of wages, right, uh, which means you know just slightly below the median, really, um, they don't earn enough to afford a modest one-bedroom apartment, right? Uh, assuming they're not going to spend more than 30% of their income on rent. And so that's an awful lot of workers. And then we also point out in the report that, you know, affordability is even more of a challenge uh, for um, the Hispanic population as well as African-American because wages tend to be lower. Well, they are lower. You know, their wage distribution is much lower than for than for whites. And so um, we show, for example, in the report that at the 50th percentile, if you're white, you know, the, the 50th percentile of white worker wages, you can afford a one-bedroom apartment. But if you're uh, black or Hispanic and at the median 
wage for blacks or Hispanics, you're not earning enough for a one bedroom apartment. So there's 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 that that racial disparity in incomes. I was also, you know, creates big disparities in terms of housing as well. And these are some really important findings. And and I'm I'm curious to just looking back uh back over 30 years from 89 to to today, um what changes are we are we seeing in in the market? Are there some positive developments in over 30 years? And surely there must be some some progress, right? So, I think one of the things that you that's a good question. I think one of the the things that we we've seen recently is because in the past 10 years affordability has gotten worse and affordability challenges have gone up the income ladder, more and more people are feeling the effect of that and they're starting to recognize uh that you know the the affordability of housing particularly rental housing is a big concern. And so for example, uh, earlier this year we did a survey um a random national survey, and 66% of adults said that it was challenging to find affordable quality, quality rental housing in their community. And uh, about three years ago, the same research firm that did it for us, they did another, they did a similar survey three years ago, and only 57% said that it was challenging to find affordable housing in community. And so more adults are identifying it as a problem, and we see that happening in across the board, whether it's a suburban community, a rural community, or a, or an urban uh, community or city. Uh, so, so there's growing awareness about that. And then, in our most recent survey, you know, a large majority of adults said it was important for their elected leaders to address housing affordability issues, and that again that that support was across the political spectrum. And so we see that, of course, as a, you know, it's positive because every people are recognizing that something has to be done. And I think that's why you see more and more attention being given it um, to, or you're, you're seeing more and more attention given to this issue in the media and also by um, political candidates, you know, making, making bold proposals on how do we solve this problem. So, Andrew, with all this attention that that's uh, happening in in recent years, uh, are you starting to see some uh, some solutions being implemented uh, that can really make a difference? Well, yeah. So some of the some of the solutions, um, sort of broadly, you know, at the national level, uh, some of some of the solutions are um, have been around for quite a while at the national level. So for example, you know, when we were talking about weak markets and the concern over the quality of housing in these markets, you know, they have the housing. It's just there's a lot of people who can't afford the housing that's there. And in that case, something like rental assistance, which, you know, at the national level, that's the housing choice voucher program, that rental assistance helps households afford the housing that's there as well as, you know, pays for a rent that would hopefully encourage landlords to maintain the quality of the of the housing, right? Uh, for other markets, like really strong markets, like so the market like San Francisco, where the two-bedroom housing wage is you know, nearly $61 an hour, there's clearly a need for more production. And so that's both the production of, of housing in general, as well as the production of housing that's subsidized in a way so it's affordable for, say, the lowest income or low-wage 
workers. And so, you know, at the national level, there are programs like the National Housing Trust Fund and the Low Income Housing Tax Credit. And you do see some communities also, you know, having some taking some responsibility in their own hands when it comes to to housing production. And so, you know, you see, um, you know, some local communities and states have housing trust funds, for example, that they have some type of dedicated source of revenue going into that trust fund and that money is for affordable housing. Um, so you see that happening. Uh, and then, you know, you see some communities um, – really thinking about their zoning and their local sort of developmental approval framework and where there may be barriers to new development in general, which is a barrier not just to development in general, but also obviously a barrier to development of affordable housing, the housing that would be affordable to low-income renters as well. And so, you know, there's been a big push to get communities to think about that as well. So some of the local barriers that they have put up to the development of housing. Uh, that's a great summary, Andrew. Thank you so much for being here today and for sharing um, your research with us each year and uh, and uh, and just illustrating this so that it does get more attention. Well, thanks for having me back again. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. If you're interested in more, be sure to follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, and subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud.